May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Glad you're here today. I want to talk to you this morning about this gospel reading from Matthew. Big idea. God sees people for who they can be. We should do the same. God sees people for who they can be. We should do the same. So today we encounter the call of Matthew to be a disciple. We actually have one vocation as followers of Jesus, and that's to be a disciple. Okay? Uh, our full-time occupation is that of disciple, but we make a living by doing all kinds of various things. But as we are a child of God, we're also a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, and that kind of dictates everything about our life, really. So this is what Matthew discovered on the day that Jesus recruited him. Uh, just to set the stage for the call of Matthew, as we move through this text, uh, we'll see that God sees what we do not. And we'll also see that it's really more important what God thinks than what others think. That's always true. There was probably never a more unlikely candidate to be an apostle than Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was hated by the people. Uh, these were the quizzlings of Palestine, a quizzling is a traitor to their own country, serving the, the needs uh, of the conquering uh, country. So he's, he's like that. You could put the word collaborator in front of the words tax collector, give it the right tone. So the problem the Roman government had was how do you collect taxes efficiently and cheaply as possible in this land? And they accomplished this by auctioning off the right to collect taxes to various people over certain areas. And the man who bought that right was responsible to the Roman government for an agreed sum. Anything over and above that, he was allowed to keep as a commission. So, for example, if Bishop Vitalis won the auction to collect taxes for this area here, he, so let's say he owes... He owes Rome $1,000, okay? So let's see, he's got Jonathan over here. He's now going to be in charge of collecting taxes at the port. David here, he's going to be in charge of collecting taxes in Jerusalem. John here, he's going to be in charge of collecting taxes in the market. And let's see, uh, Tim over here, he's going to be in charge of collecting taxes uh, at the border. Now, you know... He owes Rome, he owes Rome $1,000, but he's, he's telling you guys, you're going to give me two, and you're going to give me two, and you're going to give me two, and you're going to give me two. So you get what you can because you know you've got to give him two. Well, you, there's, you're going to get more than two because that's, that's how this works. So the system lent itself to abuses because the people didn't know what they owed in taxes. And these guys could tax anything. They, they would tax the number of wheels on your cart, the axles on your cart. They would tax, tax the number of animals pulling the cart, what was in the cart. It didn't matter. And, and there was no tax code. So they were just being taken advantage of. They became wealthy through uh, extortion at the expense of the people. And they were universally hated. And they'd entered the service of their country's conquerors, and they amassed fortunes in the process. I think every country has issues with its, for term, or with its form of the IRS, but the hatred of the Jews uh, for them was extreme. By Jewish law, a tax collector was barred from the synagogue, couldn't go into the synagogue, couldn't go into the temple. 
he was included among things unclean. He was forbidden to be a witness in a case. So robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were all grouped together, and this is Matthew. So when Jesus called Matthew, he called somebody the people hated. But I think it's one of the greatest instances in the New Testament of Jesus' power to see in a man not only who he was, but also what he could be. He saw something in Matthew that Matthew really didn't see in himself. No one ever had such faith in the possibilities as Jesus had. I think that's good news for you and me. God can use us. He sees in us things which we don't see in ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And if we are willing to say yes to him, he can put us to work in ways we never expected possible. Carol Ward was here. Carol Ward is a woman who uh, has a ministry called Favor International. She was here a few weeks ago, spoke on a Wednesday night. And she has an amazing ministry in South Sudan. And she had this, you know, she said, Lord, Lord, send me where nobody wants to go. And so South Sudan won the day. Makes sense. Um, I don't think people are beating down the doors to go to South Sudan. Uh, but, you know, when, you, when you're called to do something like that you've never done before, maybe you're a little, really? And what the Lord said to her was, I will believe in you until you believe in yourself. I will believe in you until you believe in yourself. And she has taken that word from him in her life, in her case, and she has applied it to the people that she encounters. She raises up people. They have brought thousands of people to faith in Christ. They've started uh, schools, churches, Bible college, and it's all been done by people who never thought they could do anything like that. But she has made a career out of saying to people, I will believe in you until you believe in yourself. And God does that to us. When he calls us, he doesn't call the equipped. He equips those whom he calls. Okay? So Jesus tells Matthew, follow me. Matthew gets up and follows him. And the same word that unlocked Peter and James and John and Andrew from their nets, their boats, and their parents now liberates Matthew from his tax collector seat. <coughs> um, there was a difference. Peter, James, John, and Andrew could go back to their boats, their nets, and the fish. Matthew cannot go back to his tactical. That now belongs to somebody else. So let's look at what he lost and what he found. He lost a comfortable job, but he found a destiny. He lost a good income, but he found honor. He lost a comfortable security, but he found adventure, the like of which he never imagined. When he said yes to God, those things happened. I remember, I tell you know the story of, uh, of the 15 priests that were getting ready to leave the Episcopal Church in 2007. Eight said yes, seven said no. And I think the seven that said no looked and said, boy, you know what? I've got a rectory. I live in the rectory. The church owns the house. I drive a car that belongs to the church. I've got a salary. I've got a pension. It, I, ooh, e I, no, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And then there were those of us who said, Lord, you've called us to this, and we're going to step out in faith, trusting that this is what you want us to do. And he's, this is exactly what he wanted us to do, and you're sitting in it. You're sitting in this church, Christ the King. 
he married us with living waters. We became Anglo-Costals. Paul Ferguson wrote a book all about it, how God has continued to bless that decision to step out in faith and walk away from what we did into a new life, a new world, and into the light. Vitalis was telling me about a ministry that's in Kagera Diocese, the mother diocese of Baharamulo, and you've got people who are um, lifting up and mentoring people to be teachers and trainers of others in the, in the word. And there was an organization in England called TEAR, T-E-A-R, and they have guaranteed that they were going to do, on a three-year basis, three, every year, $10,000 a year to, to fund this ministry. So this, uh, this, this contract is up in December, so they sent them paperwork. And they said, I have a question for you. Do you support same-sex marriage? Yes or no? And they said no. And the tier organization in England said, then we can no longer fund you. As of December, you're done. They could have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold it, hold it. You know, $10,000 to them is like a million dollars to us. We can't function without your funding. So, okay, we'll be fine with that. But they said, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. And so they're not going to do that. And I, I applaud them for that. God will make a way for that ministry to continue. I guarantee it. Amen is right. It may turn out that if we accept the challenge of Christ, we're going to find ourselves poor in material things. It may be that the worldly ambitions will have to go, but beyond doubt, we're going to find a peace and a joy and a thrill in life we never knew before, because in saying yes to Christ, we find a wealth surpassing anything we may have to abandon for the sake of Christ. It's a fact that when we're summoned, uh, when God summoned people to, to the following of Jesus, God has the power to change people. Things happen when we say yes to Christ. Our attitudes change. Our thoughts change, our giving habits change, our priorities change, our relationships change. Everything pretty much changes when we say yes to Christ. Some of it takes a little bit longer than others. I know when I came to faith in Christ, I had categories. And so I gave God the church, the church stuff, because he knows all about that. That's his expertise. That's his sweet spot. What did he know about the Navy? Nothing. So I said, well, I'll just take care of those decisions. You don't need to worry about that. And what did he know about finances? Probably not a lot, so I'll take care of that. What did he know about raising a family? Not much, so I'll take care of that. But over time, I realized that my Navy career didn't belong to me. It belonged to him. And my money didn't belong to me. It belonged to him. And my family didn't belong to me. It belonged to him. And really, I didn't belong to me. I belonged to him. Pretty much everything in my life belonged to him. And I just gave it up. And I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to pray and I'm going to follow your leading as I make my way through life. And here we are, you know. Mm. I tell you. So Matthew responds to this call by calling his friends together and they're going to have a party. <coughs> so they have a party at Matthew's house uh, to gather the crowd that could not reach, they couldn't reach in the synagogues and the tax collectors that had been excommunicated. What a group. 
there were a bunch of sinners, and the term sinners not only applied to immoral and pagan people, but also to the common people who were not learned in the law and did not abide by the rigid standards of the Pharisees. All that mattered to the Pharisees was the law, the legalistic execution of these different things. The Pharisees regarded these people as wicked and opposed to the will of God because they did not observe the rituals through purity. Through purity. I look at, I think about who are the marginalized people or who are the people at risk in our society and culture today. And I've come to the conclusion that the people most at risk in our society today when it comes to uh, corporate, government, education, social media, all of this stuff are the people with a biblical worldview. If you have a biblical worldview in our society today, not everywhere, but in many, many places, you are at risk of losing uh, a promotion, a position, um, friends. People will abandon you. Uh, there was just the other day a picture for the Toronto Blue Jays uh, came out and supported what happened to Anheuser-Busch because of their Bud Light commercial. Blowback. He apologized. Toronto Blue Jays have now put him on waivers because of his comment. They're getting rid of him. And they're saying it's because of his pitching. In the last 10 games that he's pitched, he's given up four hits. He's a pretty good pitcher. It ain't about the pitching. It's about the comment that he made on social media, basically standing up for what he believes. A professor at a university, if they believe that there are two genders, male and female, look out. You kind of keep that to yourself these days. Never thought we'd live in a place like this, but this is where we are. These are the marginalized people in our society today, and will we basically stand up, um, speak up in, in, a, in a good, godly way, not in an overbearing, angry way, but tell the truth when that opportunity comes. That's what God is expecting us to do. So these people gather at Matthew's house, and they're with Jesus, and they listen to his message. And it may well be that the message that day was that in the kingdom of heaven, the distinction between people break down. The old barriers vanish. We have in our world today something called identity politics. Okay? This is what the Pharisees had. You're in this category. I know all about you. I don't really need to know who you are. I know you because you're this, that, or the other thing all external characteristics. And identity politics has to do with external characteristics so that all minorities in our society, in the, in the eyes of some, are victims and the oppressed. All majority people are oppressors. Okay? Um, it has to do with race, gender, sexual orientation, age, income, national origin, all of it. And there are people who just put people in these categories and say, oh, you're that group. I know all about you. Well, no, you don't. No, you don't, because everyone is an individual, regardless of your external characteristics. God created us in his image. Every one of us is different. Every single one of us is different. And you've got to get to know people. Get rid of the external characteristics. Get to know their heart. Get to know who they are. This was the mistake the Pharisees made. 
Everybody was in the same category, so we're just going to wipe them out. Just get rid of them. Not true. Every single one of us is different. Every single one of us has different gifts that we can, we can offer to God in the service of the kingdom. So the question... So the Pharisees see the dinner, this, this dinner party. They're shocked at what they're seeing. The problem was that here's Jesus. He's popular. He's taught with great authority from the Scriptures, and he claimed to speak for God himself. Yet he ignores their laws and seems to condone sin by keeping company with all these sinners. As they watch the goings-on, their blood began to boil, and they question the disciples about what they're seeing. And the questions come in the form, really, of an accusation. So in this instance, Jesus probably stepped on every Pharisaic regulation about eating, and the Pharisees are not happy about it. And it reminded me of a scene from the movie, The Jesus Revolution.
That was Chuck Smith, and this was back in the 70s, and that Jesus revolution that occurred with young people, and he began and he started the Calvary Chapel system, and there are over 1,000 Calvary chapels now in the United States. Let there be light. Thank you. Thanks. You know, it's interesting, um, this whole idea of uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that sort of thing, we're coming up on that. Um, but it occurred to me as we were reading the psalm today, this is Psalm 50. And Psalm 50 had a really profound impact on my life when I first came to Christ. And as I read that, you know, what do I eat the flesh? Do I eat the flesh of bulls? It really brought home to me what God really wants from us. And it wasn't so much a legalistic adherence to law, but it was our hearts. It was becoming who he has always called us. It may not look the same with everybody. We may not dot all the I's and cross all the T's and do everything perfectly, but what's our, where's our heart? That's what made the difference. So this question finds its way to Jesus, and he's got an answer. And the first part of the answer comes from the old proverb on the healthy and the sick. There are those, those who are well do not seek out a physician. The physician's waiting room is filled with those who are sick. They recognize their need and come to one who can make them well. The physician, in turn, spends his time helping the sick get well. And so in many ways, you and I are the sick. And we're in need of a physician because we're spiritually sick. And Jesus, we need Jesus to make us whole and well again. We don't recognize this truth at our own peril and run the risk of becoming like the Pharisees in this story. I thank God that I'm not like other men. The whole idea of salvation by comparison. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I didn't do this or that. That's not how it works. It isn't by comparison. This is the between us. Have I repented of my sins and given my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior? That's it. It isn't about other people. So the Pharisees see the dinner party. Oops, wait a minute. Um, Jesus now quotes scripture from Hosea 6.6, 6, and uh, he told these self-righteous Pharisees to go and learn what this means. He implied that they did not know the meaning of the scriptures. It was interesting because the rabbi would say to students, go and learn. These, are, these were to the students who didn't really understand the scriptures. And, the, and Jesus tells the Pharisees to go and learn because they thought they knew the scriptures absolutely perfectly and yet Jesus tells them to go back and study again God's word to find out what the prophet really meant. I desire mercy, mercy and not sacrifice. And this really is the essence uh, of the Old Testament way of expressing the New Testament golden rule. Care more about others than you do for yourself. He's not saying that the sacrificial system was completely wrong. He was simply saying and condemning a thoughtless mechanical approach to sacrifice. A religious ritual helps when carried out with an attitude of love for God. If a person's heart is far from God, ritual becomes an empty mockery, and God doesn't want, didn't want Israel's rituals. He wanted their hearts. He doesn't want our worship and sacrifice or ritual if it's empty and hollow. He wants our hearts. And so if we come here week after week, and we offer our prayers, and we say our confession, and we still have unforgiveness in our hearts of which we are unwilling to repent, then we're exactly like the Pharisees that Jesus rightly tells us to go and study the scriptures and find out what is needed to be reconciled with God 
and our neighbor. So he distinguishes, I'm sorry, he challenged the Pharisees to apply God's word to themselves. He challenges us to apply these words to ourselves as well. So-called worship of the religious leaders of that day had become empty because it had no thought of God, salvation, or others. It was simply something that they did. Um, it became an end in itself. The liturgy became an end in itself, and if it was done properly and in the right way by the right people, that's all that mattered. It didn't matter about the person doing it. It mattered how it was done. And God says, boy, have you got it wrong. It's really about you. He's come for us to make us whole and well and to heal our sin-sick souls. So this really is a story about you and me. We are being called to go and follow Jesus no matter the cost, and the cost is coming, and it's going to be more than we thought. So stand up for what's right, even if you're the only one standing. That's the sign outside the door. It's been there as long as we have been a church, and I think it's been never more true than it is today. Bottom line today is simply this. In this short story of Matthew's call, we find the essence of Christ's call to salvation, great mercy. He calls us. He calls us needy sinners who refuse to rely on our own righteousness and to humbly learn from him. Those who respond positively through repentance and faith and stand for the truth will find salvation. This is his message. This is his gospel. And in the end, You've got to admit, we're just a bunch of nobodies. What we're trying to do is tell everybody about Jesus. Amen?
Now, the best news there was, here's Karen Murphy up there rocking out after what she's been through. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God sees us for who we can be. We need to do the same. Amen. Please stand.